guys. I was in Alpharetta, Georgia this week uh, down at the North American Mission Board for a church planting vision summit uh, with SEND Network and uh, Chosen Road has had the opportunity to be a significant part of the revitalization and the replanting movement uh, that is taking place. I think there were somewhere around 200 churches uh, last year uh, under the leadership of Mark Clifton with the North American Mission Board and some of the replant and revitalization things that are going on that were uh, replanted last year alone. Uh, So it's a growing movement. Uh, There is a lot of flyover country uh, in our nation that is sometimes forgotten, places where churches are closing at very rapid rates, and yet God hasn't forgotten about them, and uh, people are being raised up. I love that new song uh, that they wrote, and uh, pray that God will use that uh, in the days to come in that area of ministry. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look today at verses 3 through 7 in a message entitled, The Goal of Our Instruction. Now, let me give you just a brief recap of where we came from in the introduction message. Uh, 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and we are focusing in it on the distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. And Timothy was in the city of Ephesus where Paul had planted the church, and he writes to him to provide guidance for pastoral leadership and also some organization and guidance for church life. And in the introduction to this series, I focused on how pastor teachers in the church accurately and effectively are to bring the gospel to bear on the life of the church. And when the gospel is brought to bear on the life of the church, it's also brought to bear on the lives of the people. And that way the people of the church have a deep, personal, abiding understanding of and application of the gospel that is applicable to everyday life. So there's something important to note in this always, that gospel truth connects directly to gospel conduct, meaning that what we believe determines how we live. It determines the direction that our lives go in. A warning is given to not teach any different doctrine, but to teach God's plan, which operates by faith. And I want to pick up reading here in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'll read verse 3 and 4 as we begin. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. When Paul went into Macedonia, he urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus to continue the work. Even though the work was difficult, he's basically saying to him, stand in and stay strong. You need to hang in there and do what God has called you to do. He says, I urged you, remain. And sometimes that's translated as, I admonish you or encourage you. And it's the idea of a personal appeal, a calling alongside of. And this was particularly important because Ephesus was so important eventually to the outreach to the Gentiles, and he wanted that to be a solid, stable gospel foundation that made a difference beyond Ephesus. Now, you might ask, how could Timothy have been 
discouraged or tempted to leave the place prematurely. Why did he need that message? Well, he possibly missed the ministry partnership with Paul. Uh, Maybe the challenge itself was intimidating to him because he had such a significant responsibility. The daily grind of the ministry might have discouraged him. And then certainly there were false teachers who were working actively to discredit him. So imagine all these things coming against you as the leader and potentially being discouraged because of it. Now, when Paul gave his farewell message to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he gave a specific warning that there would be savage wolves, that there would be false teachers who would come in and potentially do damage to the church. And what we know is that the church needs the truth because of this. Every place of ministry is difficult in its own regard, yet God is the victor in the battle. And if we are in the fight as servants of God, either as leaders of the church or participants as servants in the life of the church, we need that same type of resolve to stand in and to stay strong. So here's the basis that we are working from. As disciples of Jesus, we need to believe that the Word of God is true because it is. We need to understand that it is a trustworthy guide for the church. Because it's true, we can depend on it to guide us and direct us as the people of God. And it provides knowledge that we need to just live our lives and then to advance the kingdom of God. On this subject of doctrine, doctrine is a set of teachings concerning a certain belief. And Paul left the believers with a certain set of teachings uh, that when they received them, he wanted them to continue in it. And he demonstrates a major concern for sound doctrine, not only here in his letter to Timothy, but throughout his writings. He is very concerned about sound doctrine. And he mentions it at least seven times in 1 Timothy alone. Remember, the purpose ultimately of sound doctrine is to teach us how to live and how to conduct ourselves in God's household, which is the church. So here's what he wrote. He said, instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. This word instruct means to charge, and it's a military word. It means to give strict orders from a commanding officer. So when he gives these words to Timothy, it's a commandment toward correct doctrine with some authority. And the reference to false doctrine indicates that there were some who were teaching something that was different. Now let's draw the parallel here. If doctrine is a body of truth, then by definition, a different doctrine is not really doctrine at all but it's something that is erroneous. In fact, some translations actually use that word erroneous when it's speaking of the things that were being taught at Ephesus. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, it would be impossible to overemphasize the importance of sound doctrine in the life of the Christian. Right thinking about all spiritual matters is imperative if we would have right living. As men do not gather grapes from thorns nor figs from thistles, So sound character does not grow out of unsound teaching. Do not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies that promote empty speculations. Now, what was Paul referring to specifically there? We don't know 
uh, with certainty, but I think he's warning against nonsense. He's warning against distractions. He's warning against these rabbit trails that people can potentially go down that would lead them away from the main thing, away from the truth. I think these people were prone to majoring on the minors. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can be prone to major on the minors and not emphasize what we should. Now, I don't think it was a particular Christological heresy because he would have addressed that or some other obvious falsehood. I think it was a more subversive form of false teaching that he was dealing with. Uh, One commentator referenced ancient Jewish writings that they've discovered that dig into these complex genealogies and then try to connect them with these wild speculations about spiritual mysteries. And maybe it was something like that. And isn't it interesting how sometimes people are drawn to those things because they think that it sounds maybe more intellectual or maybe they've got a a secret to something that nobody else knows. That was the, the wrong teaching of the Gnostic way. Was it somehow there was this higher level of teaching that when you reach this certain level of spirituality that you could understand or that you could attain to. And he's saying, don't get caught up in that stuff and warn these people that they shouldn't be going down this path. Now we move from a warning to the way in verse five. Notice what verse five says. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The word goal is from the word telos. It's a word that means the final, the complete, or the end or finished product. So what he's saying is the goal of our instruction, the finished product of what we're presenting, the completion of what we are teaching is this sacrificial, selfless form of love that comes from God. So thereby, first, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart. Now notice what he says here when he talks about this love that comes from a pure heart that is the goal of our instruction. The word instruction or commandment from God is found in how it works in the heart first. I think part of the problem in Ephesus, uh, probably along the lines of these Jewish uh, legalistic uh, lines, was because some of the people had misunderstood the law. In fact, that's what's going to follow in the next section that we look at that we won't get to today is that there were people who who wanted to teach something. They wanted to be teachers, but yet they didn't really understand what it meant. And as a result of that, maybe they got caught up in some legalism. You know, after all, legalism causes us to, to twist God's word. It causes us to teach things that are contrary to the gospel of grace. And the word pure here comes from the same word that we get our word catharsis, which was developed through Greek tragedies. The idea was that everything going wrong with the protagonist and and the gods being angry at the protagonist uh, brings in the end this point where everybody dies and then there's a cleansed feeling. So this cleansing of the heart that was brought about by this catharsis that they used in the Greek tragedies is the same idea that is being used here. So when he uses the word pure, he's talking about something that is clean, it is blameless, 
It is unstained from guilt, and it is agape love. The agape love is a love that comes from God. It's love that comes from a heart that is pure. Now, why is this issue of the heart so important? Well, according to the Bible, the heart is the control center of who we are. And it speaks to much more than just the physical part of your body, the anatomy of your body that is the muscle that we call the heart. The heart spiritually represents the center of spiritual life. It's where what we think really originates from. It's where our motives and our intentions come from. It's what drives us. And part of the message of Isaiah and the warning of Isaiah was that we can worship God with our mouths and yet our hearts be far from him. In Isaiah 29 and verse 13, the Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me and human rules direct their worship of me. This calls for an evaluation of our hearts. Why do we do what we do? Why do we spend our time on the things that we spend our time on? Why do we value as important the things that we value as important? Are all these things flowing out of a pure heart, a heart that desires to honor God? You see, the Bible is concerned with cleansed hearts. And a cleansed heart is only possible through grace. And this is in contrast to what they were dealing with in the church at Ephesus. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey wrote this. He said, as a child, I put on my best behavior on Sunday mornings, dressing up for God and for Christians around me. And it never occurred to me that church was a place to be honest now, though, as I seek to look at the world through the lens of grace, I realize that imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. Light only gets in through the cracks. What a wonderful illustration to help us think about how it is that we experience grace. It's, it's not through the law. The law reveals our sin. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. We experience God's grace through faith, where God takes the broken and he makes it new, where God takes something that is dead and he brings it to life. This is what God does for us. So instruction from the word of God will produce love that comes from a pure heart, a heart that is flowing from the heart of God. And then second, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a good conscience. Now, this word conscience comes from two words, meaning knowing together. And it, it is the knowledge of ourselves that we share together with God alone. Think about it this way. Conscience refers to our capacity for moral awareness. It's, it's our ability for moral consciousness. God gives us the ability to be self-aware. The conscience bears witness that we speak the truth and we conduct ourselves in holiness. So the conscience serves in a sense as our belief system. 
It should be consistent with what we believe. And here's part of the tricky part of this. Apart from yourself, only God knows what's in your conscience when nobody else is around. Can we not put on fronts where we present an image or a way of living that we want other people to think that we've adopted or that our lives are consistent with? And then that be the opposite of what's really in our hearts and what's in our conscience. We got to be careful about this because the opposite of a good conscience is guilt and doubt and pain and uncertainty. And where's that stuff come from? It comes from a sinful heart. So the only way you can have a good conscience is to come near to God and to ask God to cleanse you based on faith in Jesus who died for our sins and was raised so that we can be right before God. The writer of Hebrews addresses this in Hebrews 9 and verse 13 and 14, where he speaks of our consciences being cleansed from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Now, I want you to be careful because your conscience can be manipulated. Someone said that the problem uh, with the advice, follow your conscience, is that most people follow it like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want it to go, and then they follow behind it. Don't let your conscience be manipulated by your own sinful desires or by people around you who are speaking things into your life that are not helpful or holy. Be sure that your conscience is being guided by love that comes from a pure heart, by the truth of God's word, by this body of doctrine that is in the Bible. That's where your conscience should be directed from. Be careful also because your conscience can be weak and fragile and easily broken. And that's why we need the resolve of the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us overcome that. And then later on in 1 Timothy 4, Paul's going to deal with the issue of the conscience being seared to the point that it is indifferent to sin. So I say to you, be careful because your conscience can be seared to the point that you are indifferent to sin, to where you let things build up. It's the frog in the kettle mentality as it relates to your conscience and to sin in your life. Don't let that happen in your conscience. Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, he said, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. Friend, how's your conscience today before God? How's your conscience? Is it consistent with what you say you believe? Is it consistent with this body of truth, this doctrine that's in the word? Or is it something that is condemning you because of the inconsistency? The great theologian of the 20th century, Carl F.H. Henry, wrote this. He said, the glory of a good person is the testimony of a good conscience. A good conscience is able to bear very much and is cheerful in adversities. An evil conscience is always fearful and unquiet. Never rejoice except when you have done well. You shall rest sweetly if your heart does not accuse you. The one thing that keeps the conscience sensitive to God is the habit of being open to God on the inside. Are you open to God on the inside? Are you trying to compartmentalize your life so that you don't have to be aware of sin in certain areas? 
or patterns of thinking that are not good for your life spiritually. Be open to God and the Holy Spirit will give you what you need in order to have a good conscience. Instruction from the Word of God will produce love that comes from a good conscience. And then third, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a sincere faith. A sincere faith is literally a faith without hypocrisy. Now, you know that the word um, hypocrisy originally referred to an actor. Uh, Some of the older dictionaries defined it as not to impersonate, but rather to personate, meaning that um, we have this capacity in us, uh, hypocritically, uh, to take on a personality that's not our own. Or, or just to say it more simply, we, we can sometimes fake it. We can try to fake it to ourselves. We can try to fake it to others. And in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul writes, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, speaking of Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother and your mother and now lives also in you. Again, would you describe your life and more importantly, would others around you who really know you, or even more importantly than that, would God say that your spiritual life comes from a sincere faith? See, the Bible places a high value on sincere faith. Love ought to be sincere. Faith ought to be sincere. And we ought to be living in a way that what we say we believe and what we internally have in our conscience and then what we're actually doing in the world, they ought to flow together. There, there ought not to be inconsistency in it. It shouldn't be that we, we say we believe one thing, but then in our heart, there's something altogether different going on. Or in our lives, there's something completely inconsistent with what we believe. All of it ought to be together. We're, we ought to be consistent in who we are. And I, I referenced a man named Apollos in the introductory message of 1 Timothy. Uh, you remember Apollos is a man who loved God and he taught in a powerful way. But his teaching, his message was not complete. I'm not sure exactly what all that means. But because he was sincere, what did God do? God sent Priscilla and Aquila to instruct him. And when he better understood the gospel message, this man became even more bold in his preaching and his teaching. We can make an application of this to our lives as well, that when we know the Word of God and and we're following it and we're doing it from a sincere heart, then we're even more effective in our Christian life. And who doesn't want to be more effective in their Christian life? Who wants to be defeated in their Christian life? Who wants to be discouraged in their Christian life? We want to be effective as we follow Jesus. And one way that we can do that is through a sincere faith. And I know our hearts are prone to pride and to pretense. And once again, just as with the conscience, we need the Holy Spirit to have access to every part of our lives. Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 139 and verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe this is the main idea you need to get from this message today. Maybe there's some inconsistencies between what you believe 
what's truly in your conscience and how you're living your life. And God is saying to you, don't try to hide anything from me. Don't try to compartmentalize anything in your life from me. Just open it all up because I already know what's going on down deep in your soul. And by doing that, the Holy Spirit, having access to every part of your life, can lead you in the path that you need to go on. So let's make the connection here before I conclude. Sincere faith is based on what we know. What we know leads us to trust. Who and what we know and then what we trust informs us how to live. It's a chain that goes together. And instruction from the Word of God will produce love that comes from a sincere faith. Now, there's something else in this passage. A wandering away from the faith is described, which results in turning aside to fruitless discussion. Verse 6 and 7. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, verse 7, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they are insisting on. You see, when people depart from sound doctrine, they turn aside to fruitless discussion. Some people wanted to be teachers of the law, but they turned out to be something altogether different. And countless bad theologies have been based on speculations. And all who teach false doctrine and all who follow false doctrine are headed for destruction now and eternally. And this says to us, run to the truth, not away from it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're talking about distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. We're talking about distinctives of a gospel-shaped life. And a gospel-shaped life focuses on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we follow him in the way, he'll never lead us astray. He'll never lie to us. He'll never deceive us. He'll show us who he is and who we can be in him. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Once again, back to the heart of this text. What has God said to you about the truth? This is not just an idea. This is... This is God's heart communicated to you by his spirit through his word. And he's saying to you that he's the only way. He's the only way to walk and not be deceived. What's in your conscience today? What's going on down deep inside of you that only you and God know? Maybe you just need to say to the Lord, Lord, help me, cleanse me, purify me, make me useful by your grace. And I pray today that as we consider the word and consider this call from Jesus, that we not walk away the same as we are, that there wouldn't be any dark corners, that the Lord doesn't know what's going on in our lives because we're trying to hide it. He sees it all. He knows exactly where we're coming from. And he wants, us to make, he wants to make us new. 
Maybe today you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Today would be a good day to start in a life of faith with Him, a sincere faith. Whatever you need is, we're going to close out this service with a song, and then I'm going to come back, and I'll be here in the front to receive you, um, even as we dismiss. Father, we love you. We honor you. We lift up your word because it's true, and we know that you'll never lead us down a path that is wrong. I pray that our lives would be based on sound doctrine, and that sound doctrine would lead to right living, and that right living would be for your glory. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.